Hello and welcome to the Editor's Podcast for the April 2022 issue. And it's with me, Phil Smith, and my co-editor, Garant Fuller. And Garant, there's been a couple of changes to the look of the journal in recent issues. Yeah, I think it's only going to be the most eagle-eyed readers that will have spotted the fact that the cover has changed. Um, obviously, this is something you can actually see uh, at the moment you open it. I don't think you can actually see it through the uh, plastic it arrives in because obviously the, the uh, address thing's covering it. But if you've managed to open it, you'll see that we now have a photograph from the journal. So we've decided to take one of the images of the moment and turn it into the cover photo. Um, what do you think of it, Phil? Well... We had histopathology for years and years, and I think there were a few grumbles that this wasn't very practical, and uh, people might have preferred a picture of a tendon hammer every week, but perhaps uh, there aren't so many varied pictures of tuning forks and pins and tendon hammers to uh, uh, accompany this. So that's what we're doing now, is is a picture from the, maybe one of the image of the moment uh, papers. And I think it, it's also a nice way to highlight that because, you know, a lot of the time those cases are based on a striking image. And um, what better way to, to advertise the fact than putting it on the cover? So yeah. an additional incentive to send in those excellent cases. Brilliant. OK, so we've got a, an absolute feast of uh, articles again in this month's uh, uh, journal. And we're going to start off by uh, hearing a bit more about um, listening to patients in intensive care. And Garrett, you've been reading this paper. So this is actually a pair of papers. So we have a, a very nice case, which comes from Cairns, Dr. Kumta and the team. And this is really taking a single patient's experience and learning from it. So they had a patient with very severe Guillain-Barre syndrome who was completely locked in, had lost everything. And obviously he fortunately made a very good recovery, but it was sort of 80 plus days before he could communicate by moving an eye. And the striking part of this story is that the first thing he communicated was that his bowels were full. And what you were able to, to glean from this, and obviously that he's uh, been able to report on making a full recovery, was how it felt to be in this situation with complete clarity of thought and uh, complete cognitive awareness. And, and interestingly, one of the things he found most difficult was the respiratory rate and the respiratory support. And it perhaps isn't something that we would, as neurologists, think about, but um, a lot of the time in ITU, people have low volume ventilation. And there's reasonable evidence and trial evidence to support the fact that this produces better outcomes. And we had a very nice editorial from Daniel Law and Matthew Morgan reflecting on this and, and broadly saying, well, you know, the, the patients get a better outcome if you use this low volume. But obviously one of the outcomes they don't ask about is how did you feel? Did you feel you couldn't breathe? You were bleeding through a straw uh, during the whole thing. So it's, it's, it's very interesting just to have such an exploration of a dramatic clinical illness and uh, thinking through its consequence. So I think it's a very nice thought-provoking and potentially practice-changing um, paper. Yeah, it's uh, it's actually, of course, the second uh, locked-in paper personal perspective that we've had in successive issues. And uh, this one is slightly different, and it's more a how-to-do-it, because there are comments from the clinicians involved as well and their, the practical changes that they have put into place. But as you say, it, it shows how our assumptions are sometimes wrong, that we follow evidence-based protocols, and yet these may not coincide with the patient's first choice. That The fact that ventilating to a, a low CO2 is, is uncomfortable, 
the fact that normal physical therapy that's done on ITU is painful and unpleasant. The fact that uh, using minimal sedation to try to not to upset the observations is not pleasant from the patient point of view. And uh, I think Matt Morgan in the editorial summarized it quite well. He says, uh, we seldom read the very words spoken by patients in scientific journals. And uh, this is so often revealing and, and practice changing, as you say. And, and it's also so many little things that make you think about it. So one of the ways they were assessing his pain was his autonomic response. But of course, he had autonomic paralysis and was on beta blockers and various things, which meant that actually they, that was a false measure. So th- there's lots to think about in two very brief pieces, which obviously uh, inform practice. But obviously, this is this sort of level of practice, sort of an N equals one kind of level, is a dramatic contrast to the situation we now have uh, in uh, the management of epilepsy in women of uh, reproductive age. And I think you're going to take us through a paper which explores this and provides lots of practical guidance from uh, many of the people who've been very involved in uh, developing those guidelines. Yeah, so this is epilepsy and pregnancy identifying risks. It's uh... John Craig and John Paul Leach. I mean, the, the, these are highly experienced people talking about, um, well, the, the issue of pregnancy and epilepsy. We, we know a lot, of course, about valproate, and it's uh, come to the, the fore hugely since 2018. But uh, this also focuses on the problem that the risk of death is five to ten times higher in women who are pregnant, uh, who have epilepsy, than, uh, than other pregnant women. And uh, it's based upon the audit, this EMBRACE. So EMBRACE stands for Mothers and Babies Reducing Risks Through Audits and Confidential Inquiries Across the UK. And this is uh, an important publication every three years that uh, publishes deaths in obstetric situations and shows that epilepsy is a really important cause of death in pregnancy. So I think this paper highlights valproate, of course, the fact that dose-related major congenital malformations are increased to about 10%, huge, Uh, but also the bigger problem, perhaps, of neurodevelopmental delay, which uh, is detectable in 40%, but it may be that it's in more than that, because uh, the mean IQ in babies exposed to valproate in pregnancy is reduced by 11 points. That's the mean. But um, it also highlights, I think, uh, a particular problem, which is to do with lamotrigine monotherapy. Now, lamotrigine is very widely used uh, in women as the first-line monotherapy, and therefore many people will be pregnant with this. But uh, there is really some concern that um, lamotrigine needs more monitoring before, during, and after pregnancy. And these are recommendations from the International League Against Epilepsy and also the UK's MHRA. So it, it, it addresses a major area of concern there, I think, and will be practice changing from that perspective. It's really interesting because obviously the Valproate data has all come from um, the pay, the registries, which obviously John Craig, who's the lead author here, was in, instrumental in setting up one of the earliest UK ones. But it's interesting to try and see where this exploration of maternal deaths is leading us because the excess for, of patients on or women on uh, lamotrigine does strongly seem to suggest, and often monotherapy strongly seems to suggest, that it really truly is all about levels. And I think... 
If I take one one thing, one, one sort of strong new message is that the case for lamotrigine level monitoring is actually quite strong. It's not as strong as we would like, and clearly, you know, to try and design a study to try and prove it will be very challenging. But I think in terms of the uh, circumstantial evidence that we should be monitoring lamotrigine, ideally pre-pregnancy, so actually if someone's very conceptually planning um, a pregnancy, if you know what their lamotrigine level is, and then adjust the, uh, the dosage through the pregnancy to try and maintain that, seems, and again, it's obviously inferential rather than proven, likely to reduce the chance of mortality, which uh, I think is a very, very strong message. Yeah, and, and we're left with a lot of unknowns and, and questions, inevitably really, because we're never going to get randomised controlled trials of human pregnancy, and therefore all of the data are accumulated really from observational studies from women who become pregnant on monotherapies, and this takes years and years to, to assemble. Yeah. The other thing is that um, we don't really know whether valparate continues to have a problem maybe you know, is there a problem with breastfeeding is there a problem in young children still with developing brains receiving valparate all these things are, are great unknown questions but great concern that it impairs brain development in, in during uh, fetal development i was also going to mention Garrett, high dose folate as well i mean what what's the evidence for that the it's mentioned here that the retrospective observational data suggests that it, it might help to prevent cognitive problems in drugs other than Valparate, but uh, we just don't know. And the big, big unknown is really whether seizures themselves harm the baby, uh, maternal seizures this is, um, or whether it's uh, just the, uh, the drugs. And there seems to be some evidence to suggest that, uh, uh, it's, it's, that it is the seizures as well. Yeah, so I think this is a very, going to be a very useful paper, uh, really highlighting those things. You do wonder whether this is going to be the kind of thing which is going to act as a catalyst for large population-wide monitoring of uh, outcomes uh, in terms of uh, all women rather than just uh, obviously starting with case control studies effectively looking at patients who've died or young women who've died whilst pregnant and uh, uh, what's happened to them. So I think it's been a very interesting and I think important paper. And uh, I think everyone should print it out and uh, get the epilepsy nurses to read it and spread this one quite widely. Yeah. So the, the, the next paper we were going to talk about is um, genetic testing in motor neuron disease. So this is by the powerhouse duo, uh, Martin Turner and Kevin Talbot in Oxford and uh, other members of their team, highly experienced. And we tend to believe what they, they write and what they're writing here is to do with uh, uh, should we be testing everybody with uh, new diagnosis of motor neuron disease uh, in terms of uh, identifying the genetic causes of it. The problems, and they outline these very clearly in the paper, are that um, about 10 to 15 percent of uh, motor neuron disease is familial but uh, only about 70% of them have a defined uh, monogenetic cause, of which c 9 orf 72 is the most common in Europeans, and uh, the SOD1 superoxide dismutase is uh, uh, the second most common. So we can uh, identify these in familiar, but amongst people with sporadic motor neuron disease, at least 10% have uh, one of these genetic causes, a pathogenic variant, 
as the cause of their motor neuron disease. So this idea of familial and sporadic is become arbitrary and blurred and really they may all be the same sort of thing. It's so difficult to get a family history of uh, uh, motor neuron disease sometimes because we know that C9-ORF72, for example, is the commonest cause of frontal lobe dementia. And therefore, uh, a family history of what is, is the question? There may be other phenotypic manifestations of these conditions. But it is important to understand a patient's genetic cause of their motor neuron disease not least because of emerging new treatments. So really exciting news, of course, with uh, spinal muscular atrophy and antisense oligonucleotide treatments, but uh, not quite at the stage of being able to administer those to people with motor neuron disease, but it won't be long, we hope, before those sort of things, perhaps in SOD1 in particular, may become treatable. So we're treated really in this paper to uh, a very practical genetic paper with uh, several examples of the major scenarios that neurologists might encounter. You know, everything from a parent wanting testing and the children getting angry that uh, they're saying, well, now you're going to just you know, get information about us through uh, testing asymptomatic relatives, if that's ever needed or possible, uh, to pre-implantation for embryo selection, that sort of thing. So I think they, they've covered the full gamut here in what is really a potentially very practice changing for people seeing patients with motor neuron disease. And I think the other thing they've done very nicely is that they've taken a complicated problem and outlined the background so as to help people understand where things stand. And I think they've not been very didactic. They've not said this is the only way to do it because there's clearly quite a range of different things. And one of the things they've done in the, in the text, which I think works very nicely, is they've asked a question and they've given you a little summary just in case you weren't going to read the whole thing. Um, so, for example, in the diagnosis of ALS, of no value. Uh, for the individual diagnosed with ALS, the value depends on the context. In predicting the prognosis, a very limited value. So it, it's a um, very nice framework uh, to think about, uh, an issue which is becoming increasingly um, problematic and, and difficult. I, again, another very nice uh, and useful paper. And, and actually, um, something that I hadn't realised was the possible value of the neurofilament light chain. Uh, I mean, it was mentioned that... Uh, perhaps in pre-symptomatic people with motor neuron disease, there might be value in the SOD1 anyway of measuring neurofilament light chain, which could indicate a, a reason to start in the future antisense oligonucleotide treatment. So I, th I think that that's perhaps a marker for the future, maybe a future paper from this team on telling us more about yeah, that. And, and I think so much of these genetic studies, it, it, we've been waiting for the future for some time. I mean, uh, obviously the, the CMT... PMP22 genes were the first that were isolated and linked to a disease, and yet we're still without a treatment. So um, there's an element of future gazing, but in this situation, quite a lot of immediate practical value too. We then move for something which is um, perhaps looking to the future to something which actually starts off looking quite a long way backwards. Um, the paper about post-traumatic amnesia, which comes from the uh, team predominantly at St. George's, but with links with the Imperial College, and uh, there's really quite a detailed and interesting discussion. Uh, I think you were reading this for us, Phil. All right. So, yeah, it's um, post-traumatic amnesia, I think, is uh, 
Well, they, they tell us it's the period between the head injury and the resumption of normal, continuous memory. And uh, we know, of course, that this is an important indicator of the severity of a traumatic brain injury and is the strongest indicator for return to work. But I think this paper calls for greater recognition that it's more than that. It's a far more diverse condition than just impaired orientation and memory. It, there may be behavioural changes, obviously agitation, uh, impulsivity, disinhibition, etc., resembling delirium. And, uh, you know, the, these behaviours pose a risk to the patient and the staff and others around them. Uh, and it may actually be a phase of the head injury which is complicated by actual delirium and complicated by opiate analgesia and uh, uh, other treatments as well. So these authors take us through the mimics of uh, post-traumatic amnesia. And in those, you know, one of the mimics, oddly enough, is if you don't know if they've had a head injury at all. I mean, an older person might come in uh, who lives alone as, or, or somebody who's fallen from a standing height, for example, and uh, may feel that they've not had a head injury. Um, Garrett, you wanted to come in. Yeah, no, so it's just to, to make the observation, Phil, that in the differential diagnosis, um, when they were discussing it, they give you sort of some clues. And what I would particularly like is that the differential diagnosis, you know, obviously they, they suggest you might do a scan, but for most of them, the main, most important thing is to get a collateral history. And you think to yourself, isn't that marvellous? Right. right, OK, so it comes back to the very... Collateral history, thing. that'll be the ticket. Yeah, uh, and I was going to say, even those with a head injury, uh, you know, this often complicated by alcohol and, you know, illegal drugs and even verniques and uh, other things besides the intracerebral haemorrhage and pre-existing cognitive in impairment, all that sort of thing. And I thought the collateral history, they, they managed to take it into the 21st century with a very nice case that they describe of a cyclist who um, uh, came off his bicycle and was found wandering in the woods. And he was wearing one of these clever gadgets which actually track what he was doing and where he was. And what you're able to find is you could see when his... Uh, he, he was travelling at velocity when he suddenly stopped. You can then see, and there was a very nice image in the paper, of him wandering around, and you can see that he was clearly confused and wandering around for some time. And clearly this isn't a conventional collateral history, but it's quite a useful collateral history about the time of the injury, what's actually happened subsequently, and so on. And I think it uh, should, throws up the fact that oftentimes additional information is available from other sources. Uh, it's yeah. also one of the few papers that we have referencing a television programme um, with a video to link to that. So uh, I would suggest people might like to see someone describing their situation. Yeah, I think the thing, the takeaway message is that we as neurologists often work out the post-traumatic amnesia retrospectively. They make uh, the important point that really this should be measured prospectively with a validated tool and... Uh, they particularly highlight the Westmead PTA scale is the strongest predictor, really, of the prognosis. Whereas Glasgow Coma Score doesn't seem to have any value in terms of prognosis in head injury. So we then move on to a different type of disorder. We Obviously, everyone's very familiar with head injury, or we're certainly... Uh, I mean, I was slightly alarmed in the paper. They said that perhaps even half the population of the world ends up with a traumatic brain injury at some stage. But we move on to an, a newer category of disease, which is the auto-inflammatory 
uh, syndromes in neurology. And this comes uh, from the team in New Zealand, uh, led by Neil Anderson, uh, William Diprose, Anthony Jordan, and Neil Anderson. And this is our editor's choice. So there will be a further uh, podcast with the authors uh, where Amy Ross Russell will discuss this paper in much more detail. So we won't go into it great detail now, but I- I'll just highlight the fact that, as is so often the case, when there's a new category of disease, it, you have to think about it in a slightly different way. And I think the first thing to realise is that there are two types of immune system, or two types of autoimmunity. So we have, we have an immune system which is automatic, um, which is really quite old and responds to um, bugs that arrive and various things and just turns on a process. And this is the innate immune system, which uh, is relatively straightforward and produces a whole cascade of um, interleukins, tumor necrosis factor, all kinds of different things, which turn on a whole series of things um, in, in the inflammasome to respond to infection. And then we have the adaptive immune system, which is what most of us think about with immunology. So we've got the system where you have antibodies, you have activated T cells, which are primed to something that's changed them. So we've got these two parallel systems. And for the most part, autoimmune diseases that we think of, um, you know, myasthenia, encephalitis, these kind of things, they're all adapt failures in the adaptive immune system. Whereas obviously with the autoimmune system, they're a relatively small number, but quite a different pattern of problems. And I think uh, once you've realised that this system can go wrong, the question is, well, what happens when it goes wrong? And what happens when it goes wrong is that you get inflammation, um, often intermittent, often without a cause. You'll have high inflammatory markers, people will be sick, and then they'll sort of get better. And you won't really, you'll find no culture. You, you'll, you'll say, well, it should be an infection. I can't find an infection. It should be an autoimmune. I can't find an autoimmune disease. It should be sort of cancer somewhere. I can't find it. And in that sort of situation, you have to wonder, could it be one of these disorders? There's oftentimes quite a strong inflammatory element. So there can be rashes. There can be joint pains. There can be uveitis. Aseptic meningitis is quite a common manifestation. And as a result, some patients will develop vestibular syndrome or sensorineural deafness. So you, you've got these odd things and with a time course which is often quite long so patients with the uh, inherited versions and there are a number which are inherited the enthusiastic readers of the journal um, might recognize the cryopyrin associated periodic syndromes but perhaps everyone might be more familiar with the familial mediterranean fevers but so those are the genetic ones and again oftentimes they'll have started in childhood and, and in the table they, they discuss that you know actually only a minority present in adulthood but oftentimes you think that actually they're diagnosed in adulthood because they presented in childhood and people didn't work out what was wrong with them so I think we need to keep our antennae uh, available for these and then there are some acquired versions uh, including Stills disease adult Stills disease and so on so a very interesting group of conditions what, what do you make of this, Phil? Well, for me, this was a step change in thinking, really, about um, diseases because they've really answered the many mysterious cases over the years, I think. And, uh, and it's really all there in their introductory paragraph. I mean, it's all there on page one. Beautiful summary of the whole thing about you know, all, all those things you've described and the three forms of monogenic inheritance diseases, three acquired forms, the three ways they present. I mean, it's beautifully set out. The, 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 the thing that it most reminded me of, Garrett, was uh, a paper that, uh, that I wrote in Practical Neurology in 2008. And these days, we probably wouldn't accept it. Uh, it was about Goya. 
And uh, Goya, the, art, the Spanish artist, we probably reject it saying it was not, not practical enough. But when I read this um, paragraph on CAPS, cryopyrin-associated periodic syndromes, uh, and I realised that um, cold exposure can trigger disease relapses and that the, the manifestations are headache, sensory neural hearing loss, uh, aseptic meningitis and seizures... This was exactly what uh, Goya had. Goya, he, he had a relapsing illness. He, he, his first minor version of it was aged 40 in 1790. Then aged uh, 46, he developed a life-threatening illness that left him profoundly deaf. He then lived for a further 40 years uh, and died in his 80s. So clearly it wasn't syphilis or something like that. And, uh, you know, at the time I thought, could this be Susak syndrome? And courtesy of my writing that. John Susak, who died in 2012, incidentally, uh, sent me a tie with pictures of the corpus callosum with holes in it, which was uh, very, very kind of him and very nice. But he did that to everyone who mentioned Susak syndrome. But I now believe this was not Susak syndrome. I now believe, having read this wonderful paper, that this was CAPS. So, I mean, it, it, if it answers questions that far back, I think throughout um, my career, probably even your career, there have been lots of uh, cases that have been passed by, really, and not diagnosed. And now, of course, these syndromes are often treatable as well, which is so, uh, so important. Phil, Phil I, think, I think it's very good of you to come clean on that. And um, presumably we will be exploring a retraction and possibly an erratum <laughs> to try and put, put this right. Well, we, we've now got a practical implication. I've now got a practical learning point I could add to it. And uh, maybe that would push it over the line in terms of its acceptance. But, uh, but, but I, think, I think your point is very well made. It's oftentimes these patients who present with repeated puzzling disorders um, I think the key thing is you then have to just think, could it be this? And then talk to the rheumatologist, talk to the geneticist to try and work out how you can disentangle it. Because the, the diagnostic tests are not necessarily very straightforward, even though uh, you know there are panels and so on to, to help you get there. So I think the key thing is thinking of it, which obviously we, we've managed to do for Goya some hundreds of years too late. Yes, indeed. So we were going to talk about... Um Levetiracetam next, I think. Yes, so this is an interesting situation. So Levetiracetam is, a, is a, a, a drug which obviously has taken the world of epilepsy by storm, really, in that we, um, when it was introduced, many patients who'd had resistant epilepsy seemed to do very well, and it's got a relatively straightforward titration, and uh, there's lots of people seem to find that they've got very familiar with it. And the extraordinary thing that's happened is that it seems to have become a straightforward thing that people who aren't neurologists seem to do. So an acute physician sees someone, they've had a seizure, they give them levetiracetam. You know, the referral comes in saying, I've started the levetiracetam. And the slightly alarming thing is that actually we've got reasonably good evidence that this is not the best way to, go, to move forward. Um, the uh, the SANAD2 study, uh, which actually looked at this very specifically, found that 30% of patients started on levetiracetam developed significant complications, and particularly with psychiatric problems. So it's one of those situations where practice seems to be going against evidence, which is really, I think, quite surprising. I mean, what's your take, Phil? Well, well, this, yeah, it's what we're talking about is this editorial from Aidan Nelligan and others at Queen Square, and uh, he, he's they, they called it a challenge to Levetiracetam's de facto position as generic first line anti seizure medication, and that's really it. It has become that, uh, as you say, uh, 
it is known better by its brand name and uh, reach for the Kepra is the uh, expression they use in this. And, and that is seems to be, I mean, I mean pragmatically, it, it is a, it's maybe a sensible thing to do in some cases because Levitrastam does have clear advantages. I mean, it works for focal and generalized seizures. You can start it at its therapeutic dose without the need to build it up because of risk of rash or something. It doesn't have interactions, so it's good for people on other medications, especially the elderly maybe, and that doesn't get metabolized in the liver. It's available intravenously, and uh, in the ESET study for status epilepticus, it was equivalent to valproate and phenytoin and its efficacy. It's also got good safety data in pregnancy. So, so actually, there, there is a very strong case for saying it's a great drug. But as you say, the, the SANAD study showed that it did less well than lamotrigine for focal seizures and less well than valproate for generalized seizures. And one of the big problems was its risk. It's 30% risk of uh, psychiatric side effects in those people. And I think all the reasons you've just cited, the, the relative ease of introduction is a problem for a condition which is as chronic as epilepsy. And I think it's really all about the timing. So if you can think further forward and you can think a year in advance, you think, well, actually, is this the best place for us to get to? And a lot of the time, the, the time course of the decision, the immediacy is very attractive. But actually, when you've got somebody whose seizures are reasonably controlled on levotiracin, but they're irritable, they're not themselves, they may be having problems in their family life, all kinds of things which actually suddenly you don't have to disentangle because they weren't even thought about or addressed at the beginning. And I think, I think it's, that, it's that counterpoint which is problematic. Yeah, and, and as you say, it's so easy to start. Uh, you know, the, the new junior doctor in the emergency unit, not quite sure whether it was a seizure or not, maybe not enough history, patient alone at home collapse. It's just so easy to start yes. what is a long-term treatment. And uh, uh, it won't do anymore. I mean, what they're, what they're saying is this is not the right way to proceed. I think it's really a question of taking a step back and realising this has happened, because for all the very good reasons you've cited, the reasons people change their behaviour, but actually the the problem is that the people whose behaviour it's changed aren't the people who, well, obviously the patients ultimately, the people who have to face the consequences, but exploring the consequences and seeing things in the longer time course is not something uh, that they're aware of. So I think it's going to be quite a challenge to turn this around but i think that the fact that we've got a publication which is actually highlighting this is a very helpful thing yeah so then um we've got a paper on um autism we've had a number of papers over the years of uh, challenging situations and uh, how to adapt our consultation styles to uh, different patients needs and uh, so we asked uh, Miriam Cooper and uh, colleagues in Cardiff to um, tell us really how should we adapt the neurological consultation to um, a person with autism. And uh, so this is a how to do it paper. I think, Garrett, you were going yeah. to tell us. So I think, it, I, I mean, I think we set them a remarkably difficult challenge. And I think uh, in a way, the, uh, you know, we're very grateful that they've approached it. And I think... One's immediate step is that it's just so much common sense. You know, if you've got patients with autism, you need to try and establish slightly different parameters. You need maybe a little bit more time. But actually, partly to try and provide a generalised answer 
to such a complicated question is actually the thing that's the real challenge. And the cases they illustrate, um, they talk about how you might be able to manage a, a younger patient with more significant autism, but they also include a professor who has autistic traits but actually functions very well, and clearly you need to, to adjust and adapt your style of consultation in a different way uh, to someone who's extremely high-functioning in this context. So you've got that contrast with really lots of sort of sensible advice, which, you know, you read it and you think, well, of course I think I'd about this. But actually, it's a lot of the time just reflecting on it allows you to reframe and think about doing things in a slightly different way. So I think it's a very useful read. Uh, and I think most people are going to read it and think, ah, oh, yes, ah, yes, I knew all this. But actually, that's sort of the point of it. Yeah, absolutely. It's a way of enhancing the consultation really for d different patient styles, if you like. I mean, yes. one, one thing I was struck by actually uh, was the terminology. Uh, it's called an autistic patient. And you notice I introduced it as a, a person with autism. But, but actually, al although for conditions like epilepsy and diabetes, we would be very keen that the person is not defined by their illness, a diabetic person, an epileptic person would, would be a terrible way to refer to somebody. It seems that people with autism, when they are uh, asked about this, will say they feel that autism is actually part of themselves. And without the autism, they wouldn't be the same person. And therefore, they actually prefer, the majority prefer to be called autistics in order to identify that this is their diagnosis and it's sort of a secure part of their personality, if you like. So, so actually, I was surprised that uh, we are asked to refer to people as uh, an autistic person, an autistic patient, rather than a person with autism. I don't know what you, you feel about that. No, I, thought, I think it was a very interesting observation, but I think um, part of the interest in the observation is if you ask people, they can sometimes surprise you. So um, prejudging what people want is typically not a great scheme. So, yeah. um, you know, and the other point that they they made is, you know, you if someone has autism, one of the questions is whether they want that communicated on to other people. Is it, is it something that uh, is part of the framing of their situation? And, and I think, again, as I say, it's so much common sense because you think, well, of, of course you should do that. That seems perfectly reasonable. This is very sensible. And yeah. obviously this is just taking a group of patients who can often be quite challenging and have difficult situations for, uh, for complicated reasons. And actually, if you disentangle it, it can be uh, very much better for the patient and obviously in the service you can offer them. Yeah. And, and the, the other new word that's it's not new, uh, but, but the word neurotypical uh, comes up quite a lot. And the definition of neurotypical seems to be not having autism. So, you know, whether we'll be starting to use this sort of terminology in neurology a bit more, I, I don't know. But uh, uh, just putting it out there. Yeah. So we've got one last paper that we thought we'd just touch on, and uh, partly because it seemed to capture, again, clinical practice being turned into science or science being applied to clinical practice, whichever way around it is. Phil, what did you make of it? Yeah, so this is um, vision loss in giant cell arthritis. It's from Canada, uh, Laura Donaldson, Ed uh, Margolin, and... Uh, they make the very important point that 50% uh, of people with giant cell arthritis get ocular manifestations and up to 30%, one in three, end up with permanent visual loss from it. So it's clearly a really important condition. And the beauty of this paper is that they bring in how knowledge of uh, the 
artery anatomy can help us uh, make this diagnosis more secure. So the majority of visual loss in giant cell arthritis is anterior optic nerve head, anterior ischemic optic neuropathy, up to 90% is that. But maybe 10 or 15% is from central retinal artery, and that just supplies the inner part of the retina, and you end up with a pale retina and a cherry red spot. And a tiny minority, but a really important one, 5%, uh, is posterior ischemic optic neuropathy, and that tends to be bilateral, uh, and uh, it tends to be um, uh, permanent as well. So what they, they describe a couple of cases, the first is somebody who had both the pale swollen disc of anterior ischemic optic neuropathy in one eye and in the other eye had uh, the uh, pallor of the central retina and the uh, cherry red spot. And they say with that combination, there is only one diagnosis. So even when the giant, even when the temporal artery biopsy came back normal, they said, look again, because this is the diagnosis, almost 100% pretest probability. They also describe a case of a man who became suddenly blind bilaterally. There's really only a couple of differential diagnoses when, it, when it's a true optic neuropathy. And that the main one is uh, the fall of blood pressure accompanying surgery, uh, and particularly spinal surgery, it seems, with the face down. That seems to be most at risk. And seeing as he hadn't had that, there could really only be one diagnosis, and that was the uh, giant cell arthritis. And once again, the pathologist might have needed a bit of nudging to find it for them. So I think that th this is helpful showing how clinical skills can be shaped by uh, really good knowledge of the anatomy, in this case, the knowledge of the anatomy of the branches of the, of the ophthalmic artery. As you say, Phil, a very nice and uh, useful range of papers in this edition. And hopefully our readers are going to find it interesting I'm sure everyone's going to enjoy looking at the new and exciting cover. Yeah, and so, so actually we're, we're publishing a new podcast now every month. So there is this one, uh, the editor's discussion of the whole of the, the issue, but also Amy Ross Russell every month is also publishing uh, a podcast on the editor's choice paper. And uh, you can subscribe to it on your preferred platform, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, the important thing is to type in PN podcast because uh, it's not under practical neurology, it's under PN podcast. So uh, if you want to find it, and maybe you do, then uh, that's if you've not, not found it already, but you're just listening into someone else's uh, version of it, then uh, uh, please, please look for it. So, so Phil, I think the crucial thing is that if they've managed to get to this point in this podcast, we can presume they've found it. However, the key thing is for them to tell their friends and colleagues to search for PN podcast. Make uh, it go viral. Make okay. it go viral. If you like it, you can also leave a rating or a review of the Practical Neurology podcast on iTunes. Uh, this is actually quite helpful because it helps people find it and moves it up the categories. Hopefully you've enjoyed it and we'll be listening next month. And if you haven't, well, I'm very impressed you've stuck with us till the very end. So thank you very much. And thank you to the team at BMJ Publishing who've allowed us to put this together. And... Look forward to speaking to you again in two months' time. Thank you.